Today's pretty intense partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every day. Covering my nutritional basis for the day couldn't be any easier, which is why I trust Athletic Greens. Just a mix of one scoop of AG1 with water first thing in the morning, done. I also like that it costs less than $3 a day. Pretty good if you ask me. It's a really effective daily habit with the highest quality sourced ingredients, win-win. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash pretty intense. That's athleticgreens.com slash pretty intense. Check it out. Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Thank you so much for coming. You're in for a treat today with Professor David Buss. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Texas. He is the world's leading expert on strategies in mating and an author with several books, his latest being When Men Behave Badly. So I'm really fascinated with why people choose certain people, what the psychology of cheating is, the psychology of sex, the mating hierarchies, they call it mate value. Women sort of date lateral and up with the status and success and men tend to date lateral and down. You know, because I'm in this unique position being a woman but yet being successful, yeah, of course, I'm very curious. So today was a conversation about that. We talked a lot about sex, a lot about why partners want to have sex, the kind of partners they choose, why they want to have sex, cheating and why people cheat in relationships, partners choosing partners. We talked about marriage um, later in the episode about if that's sort of an institution that'll stick around or not. Super interesting stuff. So enjoy this conversation. Uh, please hit the subscribe button. Deeply appreciate that. And let me know what you think in the comments. And just thanks for coming by. Today's pretty intense partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every day. Covering my nutritional basis for the day couldn't be any easier, which is why I trust Athletic Greens. Just a mix of one scoop of AG1 with water first thing in the morning, done. I also like that it costs less than $3 a day. Pretty good if you ask me. It's a really effective daily habit with the highest quality sourced ingredients, win-win. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash pretty intense. That's athleticgreens.com slash pretty intense. Check it out. Thank you very much for doing this. I have like such a burning passion for psychology and like what makes people like they are and patterns and how to break them and um, why we are like we are. And, you know, definitely one of my super areas of fascination within that realm has been around um, like mate value and like why, why genders choose the people they choose and what makes it hard. Because, you know, like for me, I know that like being smart and being successful and various different things make make my dating pool really small because guys usually don't like to have someone more successful than them perhaps intelligent various different things so like i'm i'm 
I'm I'm eternally fascinated by this topic. So um, so thank yeah, you I, for making the time to um, appease my <laughs> burning interests. Oh my hey, my pleasure. Um, it's delightful to be talking to you. Um, and um, I share that uh, burning passion for this topic. I mean, I've devoted my life to studying human mating strategies. And right now I'm actually wrestling with exactly the issues that you raised um, uh, under the guise, under the title of the, the mating crisis. And I'm currently writing a book now with uh, Chris Williamson on that very topic because. Oh, my God. So we, we have, the, uh, indeed have, well, mating crises. But one of the ones that one of the first ones that I actually wrote about, which is an essay that I wrote uh, seven years ago, was precisely the issue that you identified with that that um, increasingly there are women who are uh, attractive, successful, uh, professionally accomplished, uh, and their uh, uh, sh shrinking pools of men who uh, meet women's standards. So women generally. Uh, in my research and others, don't like to settle for guys who are, they, they want guys who are at least, if not more successful than they are. Uh, and, um, and this is, and this is a problem, whereas guys are, are more willing to settle for a less, you know, um, successful, less financially uh, solvent, uh, lower in status, etc., in part because of the you know, evolve mate preferences that that have men men don't place as high a priority on those attributes, and they do place a higher priority compared to women uh, on physical attractiveness and physical appearance. And of course, women also place a high value on physical appearance, uh, but just not as high as as men do. And so, what it's doing is it's actually creating two different mating crises one a mating crisis among you know accomplished successful women but then also at the other end you have the the incels the involuntarily celibate men a, a large group of sexless men who are just simply a lower in mate value in women's eyes uh and so can't find a mate can't find um, a sex partner can't find romance, can't find a long-term relationship. And that's growing, and that's getting worse right now, correct? It is. Um, it is getting considerably worse so that you have a, a, an astonishing number of young men who are uh, virgins at age 30. Wow. You know, and, and, you know, and I, I think there are, uh, you know, multiple causes of this. We get into this, the details of this, but I think a combination of things like one is they're spending all their time behind computer screens uh playing video games um on social media and looking at porn um and so um and so they are to, to my astonishment they're not you know the stereotype is these guys are living in their mom's basement you know? right <laughs> they're not, not getting out into the real world they're not um setting goals for themselves they're not getting ahead um and so they're not they're not performing um the the what historically has been what men do when i visited egypt i was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents 
I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul, to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. Um, is, um, you know, strive in the workplace. And then ancestrally, it would have been being uh, ambitious and industrious and uh, intelligent in, in the domain of hunting, you know, acquiring resources consistently for themselves, for their mate, for their children, for their families. Uh, which causes them to rise in status. Uh, and then the, in the modern environment, you know, getting ahead in the workplace, high status and um, qualities that lead to success are highly valued by women. So women value guys. And one of the biggest complaints I get from women is like this guy, he has no goals. He has no drive. He doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. You know, he's not getting ahead. Mm -hmm. um, and so you fast forward, you know, you do that enough years, you fast forward to age 40. And then there's these guys who, um, you know, are still living in their mom's basement. So again, stereotype, but a, a bunch of truth to that stereotype. So is there, is it, is it, is it that the attractiveness from a male and female perspective has not changed, but the reality of what a man and a woman is experiencing and being right now is? Yes. Yeah. I think that summarizes it very accurately. Um, you know, uh, you could say like, like, for example, let's take um, a financial stability or economic solvency or decent financial prospects. This is something that women have valued uh, throughout human history. Um, and you might think, well, in the nowadays with successful women who are earning their own income and being financially successful, they mm -hmm. don't, quote, need a guy. Right. Right on the table. Right. They still want a guy. They still don't want to settle for a guy who's lower than um, they are on, on these dimensions. And so. The way that I think about it is our evolved um, mate preferences continue to operate in the modern world and women over the last 10, 20 years have um, gotten ahead, gotten ahead, gotten ahead and, and, and are surpassing men on uh, many of these dimensions. So, so even like in the in the youngest age brackets, let's say um, uh, 18 to 30, uh, women are now out earning men. Uh, in the United mm -hmm. States and and in many Western countries, and even in Japan and South Korea, and they're uh, also intellectually outperforming them too yes. when it comes to school yes. as well. So there's been a, quite a few shifts. Yeah, uh, educationally, it's been astonishing, and this is 
it's really surprised me because th these are dramatic cultural uh, shifts that occurred within our lifetimes, you know, in a relatively short period of time. And so, I mean, when I was um, an undergraduate at, mm -hmm. at university, um, I think there was a preponderance of men. I don't know exactly what the stats were, but there was no, um, no one talked about a surplus of women. But now, for example, at my university, University of Texas at Austin, there's 54% uh, women and undergraduates and 46% men. You go up to Texas Christian University uh, up near Dallas, it's 60% women, 40% men. And every year it gets a little bit more imbalanced. Mm. Um, and and then there's the issue, interesting issue of why that's happening. Well, I think yeah. that also is mostly determined. So one is that on the educational front, one of the best predictors of uh, success is high conscientiousness, the personality variable of high conscientiousness, the people who are reliable, diligent, um, attend to details, uh, uh, set goals, um, meet their goals. Uh, and women are higher than men on this, sort of all, all the way up. Mm -hmm. And then you find that with the fact that men are, and, and these aren't intelligence differences as much as personality differences, mm -hmm. that men are more likely to be um, on, on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum. Uh, so, and what that means is that, so in like grades K through 12, um, men have more difficulty sitting still. They have more difficulty concentrating. You know, they want to be out doing um, what men historically did. Yeah. The other okay. is, you know, go get a deer. <laughs> yeah, go get a deer. They're play fighting. They're learning hunting skills. They're doing, <laughs> they're outdoors doing physical stuff. They're not used to sitting still in school for six to eight hours. Um, and so, you, have, you know, on the one hand, women being more conscientious, and then on the other, men being high on this uh, uh, dimension, the spectrum disorders, but even short of the disordered end of the spectrum, you get men just more distractible, you know, and they're less able to um, sit still and concentrate on one task at those at those early ages. So then you fast forward to college applications. Well, um, women exceed men on quality of getting into a good college. But you said this is this is shifted. So why, if this is a pattern within men that they're, you know, wanting to be up and about moving around and less sort of focused and women are more, why is it now that women are doing performing better in school versus men when this pattern essentially hasn't changed? Yeah, well, I think there it's a great question. And and there are a couple reasons for that. Okay, one is that I think that the opportunities for women um, have basically just opened up. So it, it used to be expected that um, women would um, get married at a very young age, get pregnant, uh, have kids. And then, of course, that takes you out of the um, the workforce and the educational system, typically. Right. Um, and so now, though, you, you have uh, equal opportunity combined with in the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. 
To experience our wines, visit somniumwine.com and use the code SOMNIUM to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. Um, a larger segment of the population who are going to college and universities. So it used to be, you know, I don't know. I mean, you go back far enough, you know, yeah. 3%, then 5%, then 8%. Sure, because women were pregnant and having children. They weren't going to college. They were literally having kids at 22. Yes. Yeah. Or, or 19, younger. Or I mean, whatever it was. It's, uh, many in high school. And, and then you have also other things like, um, you know, it, it, advent of the pill and reliable contraception, meaning that, you know, I mean, pe young people have sex. That's what they do. Um, and um, without reliable birth control, then you have a higher pregnancy rate. Uh, so you add the pill so that women can control the reproduction, the timing of the reproduction. Um, and then that adds to it as well. So they say, no, I'm not. I want to devote time to my career first, you know, and then worry about mating uh, and getting married. And even within colleges, I mean, it's a stereotype, but it used to be. So the only reason women go to college is to get their MRS. That used to be the the Mrs. joke. Yeah, they they find find a husband who's going to be a, yeah. a doctor or a lawyer, and they get married and settle down. Um, and that and that there was some truth. That's so kind of a cliche, but there was some truth to that. Uh, and so now, with the uh, men and women expected to be sort of have equal opportunities to do these things, some of the natural proclivities of the sexes and the sex differences are are showing up in ways that they they weren't earlier when a smaller segment of the population is, is um, going to college and universities. So and, and the other thing that kind of adds to that, the back to the mating crisis for women. Mm -hmm. is that, so women are now getting more uh, college degrees, more master's degrees, more PhDs and then more professional degrees. So this is also occurring with um, uh, medicine, uh, more MDs, more uh, law degrees, uh, and that takes time. And so then women are older before they're in a um, position where they say, okay, now I'm ready to settle down and, and mate. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you have this pool of men, uh, the subset of men who are uh, ambitious and get ahead and have good jobs and a reliable income, uh, they are typically marrying women who are younger than I, they are. Yep. It's like a yeah. whole catch problem. It's like, I've thought about this a lot because of my position. I'm 41. I, I did used to be married a long, 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 long time ago, but basically single. And so, um, you know, it's challenging out there. And I kind of wonder because Men, I feel like, seem to not want to settle down for much longer. Like a woman like myself, like a man that's about my age might be trying to find a 26 to 30-year-old woman because now he's ready to commit, but that's the age that they're they're looking for to have children with, right? Like because they're and so like there's this gap for someone like me, let's say, where I'm a little past that I'm like right at the end of the reproductive years of like deciding to do that or not. But the only kind of guy that you're going to get, like not the only kind of guy, but more predictably, you're probably going to find someone a little bit older. And, 
and the younger guy is not available because they've all of a sudden now decided, oh, well, now I'll settle down. It just seems like you kind of, there's like a miss with sort of yeah. goals in life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, well, so how do you um, deal with that? So, so I, I, I'm sure, so in, in your case, you're, you're attractive, you're successful, you're intelligent, you have a lot going for you. And I'm sure there are many, many, many men who would give their right arm to uh, be with you. Um, <laughs> but it's a matter of the... It says a lot coming from someone who studies why people choose people. <laughs> well, it's just, I, it's accurate, I think. And But there's a, but but then for you, they're given that you have made preferences for, you don't want to settle for the guy who's um, you know, on the janitorial staff of, you know, buildings or what, how do you deal with that? I guess I'm willing to overlook usually the financial side of things, but the problem is then is it's actually far more of a problem for them than it is for me. Yeah. Like someone that isn't as financially successful or as successful as me, they actually have the bigger problem than I do. Even though mate value would say that I want a man that is more successful, has a higher status, it's actually them that has a problem because they're triggered by me. Uh, here's why, or here's my speculation. Thank you. To why <laughs> um, is that statistically that is going to create a mate value discrepancy. Right. So even though you're you're fine, you know, with I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't be fine if he's like has minimum wage, uh, but right. um, you know, I'm sure. So let's say you would you're willing to relax. You know, he doesn't have to be as financially well off as you are right um, that's fine but that what that means is that um uh that he's going to be intimidated by you still uh because statistically there's a higher probability uh of you finding someone better and and trading up and trading him out because this is one of the things that that has been remarkable is that um with successful women they no longer put up with a bad relationship or a bad marriage. They're there because they can, they can just get out, you know, whereas women in the past and some women today still are not in that financial position to do that. And so right, there's a little more stuck. stuck. In, yeah. They're stuck in these bad relationships or bad marriages and they can't get out. But Hey, if you, if you, if you're financially independent, you're not, you can. And, and then, you know, and so, and there's also, and not saying that this applies to you, uh, but statistically, there's also a higher probability of infidelity uh, by the by higher the woman. Mate, yeah, by the woman, uh, by the, by the higher mate value person in general. So if the man happens to be higher in mate value, he's going to be likely to probabilistically, you know. So obviously, not in all cases. Most people don't have affairs, uh, but something like a third do uh and um and it's the higher mate value person who typically is more likely to have an affair and is more likely to leave the relationship uh and so so really? he's so yeah so if he this um let me put it in stark terms this lower mate value guy um feels very lucky to get involved with you but also very insecure uh because realistically there's a higher probability you might trade them out does it doesn't lead to a man going and 
sort of conquering someone underneath them so they can feel important and like um, of a higher value. You're saying that a woman is still going to be the one that's more likely to cheat in an imbalanced mate value relationship because whoever's more successful, whoever the more successful one is, because I can see where there could be a spot for, especially for the, um, the, the woman being of higher, higher success and status being doing that. Okay. But the man wanting to feel pow empowered and powerful again by by going and, uh, cheating with someone of a lower value so they can achieve that feeling that um through history has been their pattern yeah yeah no i think that that captures it quite well and i mean this gets to uh, an interesting sex difference in motivations for infidelity yeah let's let's talk about that uh so yeah so well so why men cheat mostly cleared i was talking about on average you know because people can cheat for a variety of different reasons but on average men cheat because they have this desire for sexual variety and so you see this in some clear cases like uh, to pick an older example uh hugh grant was with um, elizabeth hurley dropped a gorgeous um model actress whatever and then he's caught, you know, having sex with a prostitute on the street in LA. Like, what's going on? He's, he's not, he, he's basically trying to satisfy this desire for sexual writing. People look at that and think he's crazy because, you know, he's he's with this gorgeous woman. Um, what, what is he doing? But that's not, that's not that atypical. And, and because a primary me- reason for men cheating is this desire for sexual variety. It's, it's not because, um, she's better looking or higher in mate value. It's just that she's different. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas for women, the primary motivation and not the exclusive, but the primary motivation for affairs is because they're unhappy in the relationship and they're looking to either get out of a bad relationship or an unsatisfactory relationship or looking to trade up in the mating market. So So this is the, the mate switching hypothesis. Is it true that a saying that men cheat to stay and women cheat to leave then? Um, well, uh, I would say the second is definitely true. Women women cheat to leave. Now, we're talking about like about 70 to 80% of women. Okay. This is what studies of women who have had affairs. This is what their primary motivation is, is to get out of a relationship or trade up or or segue back into the mating market um whereas men it's more like um chris rock had this quip of like men are only as faithful as their opportunity now that's an exaggeration opportunities who don't act on them right. um uh and it, it's true of men and women we have opportunities and we and we choose not to act on them for a variety of reasons it could be don't want to jeopardize the marriage, don't want to um, sacrifice my reputation in the eyes of other people, don't want to, um, you know, variety, variety of reasons why people choose not for religious reasons or moral reasons or whatever. Yeah, let's hope that it, let's hope that uh, integrity go, co- comes into the. <laughs> into yeah, that. yeah. Well, so like a prime example was um, 
Uh, and you may be too young to remember this, but there was uh, with uh, President Jimmy Carter. Uh, he did an interview at Playboy magazine a, a long time ago, and he said he had uh, lust in his heart and that he had committed many adultery many times in his heart. But as far as we know, he never acted on that. Um, but he confessed to what m I think most men have is they have this ferocious desire for sexual variety. Um, and but some act on it when the opportunities are there or the costs and risks are low, but many don't act on it. And his case, as far as we know, he never acted on it and was always 100 percent monogamously faithful to his wife, Rosalind. I don't think it's the right question to ask, why do men want variety? I'm going to ask instead, what is it that uh, each gender um, wants sex for and what does it mean to them? Like what what is the sexual psychology for a man versus a woman that would lead to then, of course, why men want variety? Well, that's a great question and um, a, a deep question because I mean it gets to the heart of our, our evolved sexual psychology. The reason that men have this desire for sexual variety, and it's different for for men than women, and it's not that women have zero desire for sexual variety. Uh, it's just that it's low on average compared to men. And and there's so many examples of this. So just descriptively, a man can walk down a city block and pass half a dozen women and have thoughts about sex with that woman within a span of two minutes. Um, and and I don't think women do. Now, women do become attracted to, you know, so I hear, you know, even women who are in stable relationships, you know, that uh, John, uh, uh, John Hamm playing Don Draper, you know, people become infatuated with Don Draper or, uh, or George Clooney, um, or I don't know who, I guess some younger, uh, Ryan Gosling. Uh, in, in, uh, sure, I can think of a few. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or historic, I don't know where Brad Pitt stands, but he used to be a, a sex mm -hmm. symbol and women just like would croon over uh, Brad Pitt and perhaps have sexual fantasies about Brad Pitt. But um, but for, it, it's just like uh, it's a it's it's just still a massive difference. Uh, and this shows up this this sex difference. It shows up in things like a number of sexual thoughts per day. Uh, men have many more than women. A number of different people you have sexual thoughts about men much higher than women. Um, consumption of uh, uh, pornography, about 80% of the pornography is consumed by men than women. And even the, the nature of the pornography is very different. You know, with men, it's just, there's no plot. You know, there's like maid comes into the hotel room to clean up the room and within 10 seconds, they're having sex. Uh, you know, whereas women's, women's pornography tends to be more, have some, some plot, some context, some romance, um, and uh, so, so even the nature of men's and women's sexual fantasies are very, very different. And this shows up, for example, in, uh, I don't know if you've ever read this, Danica, but uh, like the, the romance novels, like uh, the, they used to be called bodice rippers, you know, where you have on the cover is this like rugged, uh, handsome, dashingly sure. handsome man who happens to be a... Uh, a wildly successful businessman or a prince or whatever. He's like off the charts in status. Women desire him 
uh, many women, and but he finds himself uncontrollably drawn to this one woman, sort of against his will. And, and, and oh, it's the it's the modern day uh, Fifty Shades of Grey guy, Christian Grey. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and you can bet who's I mean who's so these these romance novels. It's actually the largest uh, selling book category in the publishing book publishing industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry, uh, and um, and it's ninety-five percent of the consumers of those books women. Are, are, are women because men like to watch it, and women like to read about it. Yeah, and 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 it, yeah, it taps an entirely different. I mean, it highlights the difference between male and female sexual psychology, and 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 is these, it an imagination thing? Because like as a as like a low level example. Like you can say to a guy like, oh, what should I wear? And he might not be able to kind of picture. He's like, I don't know, put something on and I'll tell you. Like, and a girl can go, oh, I don't know. Like maybe like a cute little black dress with, you know, like um, some shoes, some like kind of boots. You like, What do you have for boots? Like a girl might have this vision of what something yeah. should look like. And a guy's like, I don't know, I need to see it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And um, all the studies point to exactly that, that with men, the visual sense is overwhelmingly the primary sense whereas women it's uh it use a, a much wider range of senses that are involved in their sexual attraction you know mm -hmm. so touch sound um mood context setting uh and then to your point about d these different um uh, imagining different dress scenarios I mean, women are just more, uh, they, they devote more uh, time, attention, and effort to, e to even thinking about those things. Mm -hmm. And have a, and most people don't know this, they have a much richer color vocabulary oh. so, um, than men. You know, so men, it's like, well, there's there's a green and red, you know, or and, and for women, they have like six different words for green. Well, there's teal and there's <laughs> green and there's, you know. There's mint. <laughs> Yeah, and then yeah, Christmas tree red versus emerald green. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so even women have this uh, much richer um, sensory vocabulary for colors. Uh, so, um, so that's another that's another really interesting sex difference. Um, but but anyway, so yeah, so you get these these fundamental sex differences in our sexual psychology, and then that they play out in the real world um in sometimes catastrophic ways um and, and they also even they can they play out within relationships themselves because if you figure so men have and this is again this is maybe politically incorrect to say this but all the data show this is that men have a higher sex drive on average now there are women with very high sex drives but men on average have a much higher sex drive this is another miss because men's sex drive tends to be sort of that I don't know, let's call it 20 range, 25, like 18 to 25 feels very high. But then for a woman, it's like a later 30s. Yeah. But yeah. For when it for when it peaks. Right. Another itself. miss in like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which men and women are miscalibrated. Yeah. So <laughs> so in terms of sex drive, ideally what you want, you know, is a, a 35 year old woman with an 18 year old guy who uh, who's the pool boy. <laughs> 
<laughs> with her, with her 18 year old fertility level or whatever, if they are wanting to move forward in that direction. <laughs> right. Well, well, and that's another interesting thing is that we found in our research that uh, as women's uh, biological clock starts to tick down, they their sex drive does go up uh, and they become more interested in, um, you know, acting. Interesting. On, uh, in 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 correspondence to this internal biological clock that is running out, essentially, is that there's, I, I a, there's actually a real life scenario that plays out to try and mate because perhaps a baseline human nature is survival, and survival means procreation. I would reverse that and just say the bottom line of evolution by selection is is reproductive success. Uh, and so survival is really only a means to that, very important means. Uh, okay, but but here's another interesting thing we have to add to the mix here. Um, and that is that uh, if you look at, let's say, a 20-year-old um, woman in a natural hunter-gatherer group, she looks like uh, a 40-year-old woman in our society. And so... And so I'm I'm looking at, at you, and if and if someone just said like how old is um, uh, how old are you? I I wouldn't um, I, I would say something like well maybe 30, 32, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of that is that we live in a modern environment where we're not subjected to the you know the hostile forces of nature. We're not spending 12 hours a day in the sunlight and you know uh you know tromping through the woods and you know gathering berries and so forth and uh and so you go to these hunter gatherer societies younger women do in fact look older and in our society uh quote older women look quite young you know so um and so that's another um, that's another interesting feature of um of modern living which i think is is great actually <laughs> we could stay well especially young. for guys who are very visual yeah uh or, or everybody can stay younger looking um for longer yeah, than the case historically it's true what is the true significance of cheating then because the women are more emotional men t tend to be more you know about variety so so yeah elaborate on the emotional side of sex from each perspective a, a wonderful question and again there are these profound sex differences so let's take uh, affairs for example so so in studies of like why did you have the affair or what would be if you were to have an affair what would be the reason so what, what the studies show is that 79 percent of women who have affairs um fall in love with their affair partner and become emotionally attached to or emotionally involved with their affair partner. For men, that corresponding number is about 30%. Uh, so there's this huge difference there. Um, and another indication is just even pe for people who don't have affairs, um, sex and emotional connection are more... Um, disjunctive in in men they're like more separate things so like a study that was done so uh they had this was done originally on a college campus so they had male and female um confederates as they were called this doesn't mean people from the south but it's just members of the experimental team um who were judged to be moderately attractive 
walk up to members of the opposite sex on a college campus and say, hi, I've been noticing you around campus lately. I find you very attractive. Would you, and they ask them one of three questions. Would you go on a date with me? Uh, would you come back to my apartment with me? Would you have sex with me? And they simply recorded the percentage of individuals who agreed to these three different requests. And of the women approached, about 50% agreed to go out on a date with the guy, 6% agreed to go back to his apartment, and 0% agreed to have sex. Of course. Um, women typically need a little more information about the guy. Of, of the men approached by the female Confederate, also about 50% agreed to go on a date with her, 69% agreed to go back to her apartment, and 75% agreed to have sex with her. Like what? What's the why? How did the how you're a man? How do you answer? Yes, I'll just go back and have sex with you. Let's just well, start there. It, Let's it, start there. It's a great question. And well, first of all, um, uh, the one qualifier is that um, these Confederates were judged to be moderately attractive, but and equally equally so um, for men. Um, sexual opportunities are very rare. Now, it may not seem that way in the modern environment with Tinder and college campus hookups and everything, but historically, um, sexual opportunities were very rare. And even in the modern environment, so you go on um, Tinder, for example, and uh, or OkCupid is another dating site, and there's studies done of just rate how attractive members of the opposite sex are. And men rating women, it shows this normal bell-shaped bell distribution where some women are very attractive, some women are not so attractive, and they're, you know, there's a large number in, kind of in the middle or a different range. You ask women how attractive men are, only about 20% make it up above threshold. Hmm. Um, and most women find most men just to be below threshold on attractiveness and so mm -hmm. what that means is that men find women on average more attractive than women find men uh and so um and so with these guys who are approached by a, a woman this has probably never happened to them in their life i mean who, of course it happens to uh movie stars or right because it's a very boxers. small amount of men that are actually getting the action yeah in the yeah. ranking of it all, because there's so many, so much criteria and so much judgment on if a woman wants to mate with that or have sex with him or connect with him. So there's just the pool is tiny of the men that are actually having sex with women. Right, right, exactly. And and it's gotten tinier in the sense that um, uh, the men who are having sex, let's say the top 20%, are having a lot of it. That right. Uh, a larger number of uh, women, um, and then, in essence, monopolizing those, uh, uh, leaving a larger and larger share of men who are sexless, and 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 that's why you have these phenomena. Now, the incel is an extreme example, um, but there is this pool of men who just um, uh, can't find women who uh, are attracted to them. And, and this is where this gets back to our earlier discussion of the mating crisis, where um, these guys are spending all their time on, uh, on watching pornography, on social media, uh, playing video games, 
Uh, and so they're not interacting in real life. And how do you develop mating skills, you know, skills of attraction, skills of social interaction? So you actually have to meet people and interact in real life. And these guys are not doing that. And so there's this been a rise of um, anxiety. And I think it's actually anxiety of several different sorts. One is simply social anxiety, where men feel awkward. And when they, especially when they meet an attractive woman, they don't know what to say, what to talk about, or they, you know, and they get kind of paralyzed with anxiety. Uh, and so they tend, people tend to avoid things that they're anxious about. So it's kind of as a vicious cycle. Yeah. Um, and men fear, second one is like a subset is men fear rejection. Yeah. And which is, um, you know, when they approach a woman, if they, and they fear being shot down, um, for good reason, because they often are shot down. Um, uh, but the, um, the fear of rejection has this paradoxical quality where even though we're supposed to live in the sexually egalitarian world, 90% of women still expect the guy to make the first move. Right. Another and so, catch. And so they're expecting the guy to make the first move. He's paralyzed with anxiety and doesn't want to risk being shot down. Uh, and so they tend to avoid interacting with women. And so don't develop the kinds of mating skills that they need. There's a whole movement around men becoming more vulnerable, right? Men, men breaking this old pattern paradigm of women come home and clean and cook and they go to work and they don't have to be emotionally available or tell them a damn thing. And women are like, we don't want that anymore. Look, it's, a, it's not connected. I don't feel connected to you. I want you to show up for me in an emotional way. I want you to share with me. I want you to be more vulnerable. I want to hear about your feelings. I want to know about those things. So now you're talking about how a man is so scared to be let down, so rejected. Um, he doesn't want to deal with the the anxiety or the pressures. And so there are so many opportunities to go into um, a solitary land of pornography and of video games where they don't have to interact. They don't have to be, they don't have to be on, they don't have to be, have the potential of getting disappointed. So it feels like actually part of this package of what women are expecting men to be. And their men are just getting squeezed so hard. There's so much temptation to not have to deal with it. There's so many opportunities to not have to deal with it, but it's actually making it worse for men. And they're becoming even more unavailable because they don't even know how to, they don't even show up, let alone know how to talk to someone. So it kind of feels like part of that, that expectation level that I believe women really do want now. Like we're just not okay with you being emotionally unavailable because one thing that women traditionally can sense more than men is energy and the true feelings of what's going on. Yes. And we're not okay with pushing that down because we have options to leave now. So we, we don't have to just put up with disconnection we can go find it yeah yeah no i think that's a great set of points and um but i would uh, add a, a a nuance to what you just said and that is that women do want guys who are emotionally available um not just to you know talk about their emotions and feelings but also to be genuinely interested in a woman's emotional life as well 
Okay, but women don't want a guy to be emotionally weak, you know. Right. So, so tell me what the difference is then. What's the how do you how do how you be, how do you become an emotionally vulnerable, available man, but not weak? Well, I think the weak the weak is um falling apart under pressure. Or, you know, that is we we all experience stresses and strains and problems and road bumps and you know uh difficulties that we have to cope with. And so women want a guy who can talk about those but not fall apart under stress not curl up in a ball in the bedroom and you know um be beaten down by those you know because in fact it's a sign of strength you know and resilience to be able to face the hurdles and problems that we all face and make it through them and figure out ways to solve them and get past them um and so um and so there is that issue and i wonder I wonder, and this is, I mean, I haven't thought about this deeply, but your your set of points raises this issue of how do men develop the ability to be emotionally available and communicative, but not also show emotional weakness? Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's part of what men are afraid of, is, you know, mm-hmm. is, is that they they don't want to appear weak. And then, then the question is, what is weak? How How would you define that? Yeah, falling apart, not having the psychological resources to be able to cope with the challenges that everyone has to face in day-to-day life. Okay. So it feels to me like a man wants to have the answers. He wants to solve problems. But the thing about being emotionally available and vulnerable is that is that you don't have the answer. Right. Right. That's like the dichotomy of it. The, the, The paradox is that that the vulnerability is like, I don't know what to do. I'm lost. I'm scared. I'm sad. I'm whatever. I feel, I feel this negative energy and I don't know how to fix it, which is the vulnerability that, right. Otherwise it's not a vulnerability. It's just a damn solution. And you just go to work. Like you wouldn't be sharing your sadness if you knew exactly how to solve the problem at work or to solve the problem with your partner or with your parents, you wouldn't be on, you wouldn't be a wreck because you'd have the solution and you just go do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's that's another um, sex difference right there is that sometimes uh, and and I encounter this so often in in couples is let's say the woman, let's say the woman wants to talk about some difficulty she's having at work, you know, or with a coworker or something like that. And the guys there were like, okay, you're here. There's a straight line to solving the problem. B. Now let's let's uh, let's get dinner. You know, and, and, the, and the woman doesn't necessarily want, you know, a solution provided. She wants the guy to listen to her describe what the n- nuances and nature of the issues are. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so there's a, but, but I think guys are typically more uh, solution, solution oriented. In that, and so that, and then that upsets the woman because she wants the guy to listen to her. Mm-hmm. And listen to all the nuances and details and so forth. You can see this in conversations where, um, and I've seen so many of these where a woman's talking to another woman, and she says, "Let's say they, they're talking about a date that they went on, a date that one of the women went on the night before." And so they'll say, "Well," and then I said this, and he said that, and I said this, and he said that, and the other one will say, "Well, now what was his facial expression when he said that?" And so they go into the the nuances and 
details and minutia of their interaction. Mm-hmm. And guys don't do that. I said, like, well, how did the date go? Um, it went great. Uh, we had sex. It was wonderful. Or I wanted to have sex. She didn't want to. So I was frustrated. So it's a, it's a very different nature of um, male and female communication and and create and create some problems in in relationships because they're communicating using very different styles yeah true but i will say as you were describing the scenario of you know there's a problem here's a solution i'm like the guy like i am practical rational you have a problem i want to help you fix it so do you think that there's also a problem with the kind of woman that a successful female is becoming by being more in charge, creating more of those rational, sol- you know, problem solving techniques, because that's part of the nature of being someone successful is you're usually managing people, you're usually directing things, you're in charge. And so that then trickles down into regular life. And then this sort of soft, emotional, oh, what? And there's becomes this, what happened today? Oh, do this. And it's like, maybe a man really wants to be heard too, or not. Like, is there a evolutionary sort of issue with a female becoming more successful or having more status, more, uh, some more of a, a working woman and the kind of woman she's becoming not being what a man really wants anymore? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. And I just, I could speculate on that. So, so I, I, I don't know, but my guess is from the woman's point of view, she wants a guy who is also good at and talented at those kinds of decision-making abilities mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. uh, women don't want a guy who's so wishy-washy or um doesn't know how to solve problems in that in that directive way um and uh and so again we might get back to that issue that you first brought up Danica, in their our, our early part of our conversation, which is that some of these guys would be intimidated by women who have those capabilities. So, yes, I've thought about that a lot. And the word that comes up when I when I go into that space of being intimidated is is really triggered. Because. A man wants to feel powerful. And this is my understanding. A man wants to feel powerful. He wants to feel um, accomplished, successful. He wants to have that mate status value of being higher. He wants that. He wants that status situation. And so when a man comes across a woman that challenges that, he now has to see himself in that scenario. He now is actually getting that mirror to you're not that. And right. he, he's triggered because he hasn't reached higher, you know, challenged himself enough or been lucky enough to be in the right scenario to work for the right person, to climb the ladder, to get the salary, to whatever it may be. Like, I, I don't know. Is there intimidated feels like an unfinished thought to me? Yeah. Well, I mean, intimidated. um, in the sense that we talked about earlier that um 
you know, so, so one, I mean, in the mating world, so there's, there's mate selection, there's mate attraction. So uh, there has to be mutual mate selection, mutual attraction, but there's also the problem of mate retention. Uh, so attracting someone is not enough. You know, you have, there's mate retention. And as we know, there's, you know, high, high breakup rates. And uh, with guys, they, they want to be successful mate retainers. So they, they don't want to lose the woman. And so, again, if those are indicator, indicators that she's higher in mate value, then statistically she's going to be more likely to defect and, and uh, leave the relationship. Uh, and so, um, and so that's why, so, and, and triggers sexual jealousy, by the way, so the lower, the lower mate value guys, uh, get triggered in terms of sexual jealousy because they realistically, I think, um, appraise that the woman has other options and those other options might be better than the option, better than he is. Um, and so again, it's sort of a, a, a realistic, um, so you can say as well, it's due, due to the fragile male ego and he just can't handle it. Um, but there's also a, a, a real component that the woman in reality is more likely to trade up if she's with a guy like that. Mm. Mm. What about the this whole, well, let's start with monogamy first, because we've okay. already identified there are differences in why a per, why a man versus a woman has sex and or cheats that there's different different reasons for that so is monogamy completely natural i get asked this question a lot are humans fundamentally monogamous or are we fundamentally polygynous or promiscuous or polyamorous right is marriage and mating just to do with now like back in the old days with uh keeping uh family land in the land in the family or you know riches or things like that, or, you know. The way I think about it is that we have, humans have an evolved menu of mating strategies. We don't just have one. Long-term mating, pair bonding, and mm. attachment. Mm. And I think that is part of our mating strategy. So if you go to our closest primate relative, who's the chimpanzee, with whom we share more than 98% of our DNA, they don't have anything resembling a long-term mating strategy or a pair bonded mating strategy. They have the female comes into estrus, female chimp, males mate with that female when she's in estrus. She doesn't conceal it. She is get the bright red genital swellings and the olfactory cues. Uh, and then after she the estrus phase, the males are indifferent and they don't interact much with the females anymore. Uh, and they don't um, and they don't do anything for the offspring either. So, but in humans, you have these three things that have co-evolved. So you have one is the evolution of long-term pair bonds. Right. And it's one of the mating strategies amidst this menu. Two, you have relatively concealed ovulation. So compared to our chimps, you men can't tell when women are ovulating uh, or not. And a lot of women can't tell. Now, some women are very sensitive to their bodies in the modern environment. You, you can get that information. But three, you have the evolution of very high male parental investment. So in contrast to the male chimps, men do invest heavily in offspring. Not always, of course, we have deadbeat dads and guys who abandon their families and all that. But, but compared to all other primate species, 
human males, men do invest uh, sometimes a couple of decades or more in their children. They protect them, they feed them, they provision them, they they put a shelter over their heads, et cetera. Uh, and so, um, so, so, so we def definitely have long-term peer bonded mating. Now that doesn't necessarily mean monogamous mating because we also have short-term mating we have affair mating, infidelity, uh, as, I, as I mentioned. Uh, we have serial mating, which is very common in our species. So you mate with one person for a while, break up, and then mate with another person for a while, break up, and so forth. And, um, that's a very common pattern, especially in the modern environment. Um, and then we have people who mix and match. And then a, a small minority of people do polyamory. Um, and then historically, there's also been polygyny, which is one man, multiple wives. Mm. Uh, and that is um, against the law uh, in this in, in this country. But we have sometimes what you might call effective polygyny, you know, which is that top 20 percent of the men sometimes engage in, you know, not necessarily simultaneous wives, but maybe one long-term mate after another, after another, after another. So an extreme example might be Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, who uh, I'm sure you've seen those charts where as he gets older, the age of his girlfriends stays the same. <laughs> yeah. Lucky him. But he's, he's, he's an extreme example um, mm -hmm. of that. But I guess, I mean, you know, I mean, some, I mean, there are other examples um, I mean, George Clooney, I think, sort of did that for a while before he settled down to right. what seems like a very happy long-term uh, marriage. Right. So, what triggers that? What triggers settling down to a happy long-term marriage? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I know one guy, and, and I don't know if this is a general answer, but his view is he, he's going to make... Um, as much as he can with different women until his mate value uh, kind of plateaus. And then he's going to try to lock in a high mate. The best you can find. Woman. So, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you also have, a, I mean, another example of that in the Hollywood arena is Warren Beatty, you know, who is a notorious um, ladies man in his day, but then met uh, Annette Benning and, and settled down to, um, I guess, I don't know, 25, year 30 year relationship with four kids and so forth so probably good not to count on a guy in his 20s um settling down if he's in that top 20 percent oh that is the catch right there if he's in the top 20 percent be careful of that explain yeah. more because they have more options yeah 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 and, and like chris rock said you're only as you're only as loyal as your options yeah, yeah, an exaggeration, but there's some truth to it as well. Uh, mm -hmm. That men who who can, who have the opportunity, stuff, and that's why you get. Um, I mean, that's why it becomes problematic for you know. And I know, I mean, you your involvement in in racing and the sports world, and you're familiar with all that. The the star athletes um and sports figures and rock stars i mean get, they get they get a huge amount of attention um from women you know i mean oh yeah the women definitely make it obvious for the men i can't say that from the other perspective being a 
female athlete, the men don't make it as obvious to women. I mean, they can, but I think it's much more, it's a much more dangerous situation for a woman wanting one of those top 20% men who especially are elite level performers and celebrities to, to imagine that that's going to go well. If right, you want. Right. right. And, and, and the, you know, and the, and the problem is that it, it doesn't stop. So even after, uh, let's say, um, Leonardo DiCaprio, let's say he settles down and gets married, you know, does that mean that there are no longer going to be any women interested in him? Well, I think the women will continue to be interested in him. Um, so, uh, so, and that, 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 you know, offers a set of temptations that, you know, men are tempted to act on, some do, and, and, but as we talked about earlier, some don't, you know, some don't want to jeopardize their relationship and choose not to act on those things. So you mentioned polyamory, which is something that I'm curious about, because um, it does seem like the relationship realm is shifting. Somehow it's shifting. So polyamory is one of those things that has become more popular for sure. So what have you come across any studies, data um, on polyamory working long term is or is this merely a phase of trying to figure out? Because I feel like when there's shifts in culture and patterns, the pendulum kind of can swing a bit. And yeah. like, we're not always in a place that we're going to stay, but we're trying to kind of find where we can settle, but it's not where we were. So is polyamory really a real option emerging in the dating market and in relationships, or is this merely a phase on its way to something? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And um, I don't know the final answer to that. I mean, it's talked about more, it's written about more. There's more open polyamory than there um, used to be. I don't know if the actual rates have gone up. I guess it wouldn't surprise me if they have. Historically, open relationships, uh, which is another term for it, there's all these different terms. So there's consensual monogamy, right. open relationships, swinging. Historically, they have tended not to work. One form of polyamory is you have one primary partner Mm -hmm. But then you have an open relationship where you allow the other person to do X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And the X, Y, or Z is typically worked out in if it's consensual in an explicit kind of way where you allow the other person to do X and Y, but not Z. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I've talked to many people who are, uh, not many, but I've talked to, let's say, a dozen people who are polyamorous, who are friends, students, et cetera. And I think that. Um, I think it's my intuition is that it, it can work, but only for a very small minority of people. Uh, I think most people are not cut out for it. And the reason is, is that once you introduce other people into the mix, then there's always the danger of, um, let's say, uh, jettisoning the primary partner and switching to one of your paramours. Uh, but there's also sexual jealousy, and this is an, an emotion that we've we've touched touched on earlier. But I read a whole book on sexual jealousy, infidelity, and sexual jealousy, and it's a very powerful emotion. And it comes online when people fall in love and they form a long term pair bonded uh, attachment to the other. 
And so, um, and so this is one of the, they even call it a, the monster figure in the polyamorous community. Like, how do we cope with this jealousy? Because it's not like it goes away. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, so now I think there's some people who are really on the low side of jealousy and so can somehow deal with their partner having sex. But I know, just I'll give you one example of a couple that I know who are, they are each other's primary polyamorous partner, uh, but they allow each other to have sex with other people. Um, in her case, she's bisexual. And so she's sometimes has sex with other women, sometimes other men. And when I talked to him, he says um, that he really, he, he doesn't bother him very much if she has sex with another woman, but it really bothers him when she has sex with another man. Uh, and then what she says is she, she says, well, it doesn't bother me if he has sex with women. But one time I saw him walking down the street holding hands with one of his paramours. And that really triggered her jealousy. Uh, and so, and that gets, yeah, exactly. That is the emotional dimensions of infidelity or involvement with other people are much more bothersome to women than to men in the sexual aspects of the infidelity, especially in this case, heterosexual aspects are much more bothersome to men. And that's reflective of, uh, there's a large literature on sex differences and the triggers of jealousy. Those who choose a polyamorous lifestyle always have to struggle with, um, with jealousy, with sexual jealousy, and they find ways to get around it and uh, ways to minimize its negative impact on their relationship. But um, the short answer to your question is there haven't been long-term studies to see whether these things actually work out over the long run. And I'll mention one other sex difference in that. So I know this one woman who was in a polyamorous relationship um, and it was, and, and this I think is often the case that it's the guy who is wants to drag the woman into the polyamorous relationship for the desire for sexual variety, I think is the motive behind it. Um, and women sometimes go along with that because they, they want to keep the guy. That is, it's a mate retention tactic. Mm -hmm. uh, even though, you know, they're willing to go along, even though it's not their preferred option, they're afraid of losing him. So they go along with it. So there's a, there's an on average sex difference in that. Um, but this woman that I'm thinking about, she was, you know, visited uh, she was extolling all the virtues of polyamory or whatever uh and then um then she got divorced from her primary partner they were married and subsequently she got remarried uh and had a kid and it's no longer at all from that moment uh, the, of the divorce and no longer involved in the polyamorous community right and so my guess is that that's that's more typical but we don't really know. So there haven't been, you know, good long-term studies of polyamorous. Sure. Well, it requires them to be honest. Too. It requires people to be open yeah. to talking about it, honest about their situation. And it's also a much more new pattern in society yeah. that is available, that is, you know, something people are sharing more about. Like, what's the reason for someone to have enough discipline to choose someone and stay with them and stay monogamous and loyal? Part of it might be that people have to adjust their mate preferences. So, um, so 
the things that people select on are not necessarily the things that lead to long-term stable happy relationships so so the, the other side of it just to add a, a a wrinkle to your question is that there are people who do stay married and do stay monogamous but they live lives of uh the proverbial quiet lives of quiet desperation where they're un, they feel unhappy or unfulfilled or unsatisfied but it's not bad enough for them to leave the relationship and and you know go out back out in the mating market dangerous place to be for it to be not bad enough but also not good enough yes yeah and, and i think there's there's a chunk of people who <laughs> fall in that category uh uh and so they they stick it out even though it's you know and then they get to the end of their life and yeah they were monogamous they were loyal but didn't necessarily lead a very fulfilling um life in the, in that respect but in terms of um selecting like one of the one of the most important predictors of um marital happiness to, to studies of married couples is emotional stability and this circles back to another theme that we talked about earlier and um one way to think about emotional stability is um i mean there are other words for it, moodiness or emotional liability or emotional reactiveness uh, or whatever but um the it's a very important personality dimension and one way to think about it is that we all experience challenges and problems and stress and and what happens with emotionally unstable people is they get uh, their equilibrium gets knocked out of whack and it takes them a long time to return to that stable psychological equilibrium um whereas emotionally stable people they might get upset and they make it angry or whatever but then they return to baseline much more quickly and so, uh, so that's one key hallmark of that. Uh, and what I found, so I've studied newlywed couples and married couples and looked at, well, what predicts conflict in relationships and what predicts, you know, marital satisfaction and whether they're going to stay together over the long term. And this is one of the most important personality variables that predicts that. So if you're, if you're with someone who's emotionally unstable, um, then you're in for all kinds of problems in conflict mm -hmm. and and uh and they're just a, a net drain they what i call a high relationship load you know it's um so we have things like um mutation load uh parasite load um you know different different types of loads and there's a concept that i've termed relationship load where someone just is you know it's costly to deal with this person because uh, mm -hmm. they're always uh, upset they're always you know, raising problems, they're just like, uh, uh, you know, and, and that takes time and attention and effort away from other life tasks that people need to do. But anyway, uh, nobody, or very few people prioritize this personality dimension when they select mates. They they, they go on, well, is this person attractive? You know, are they, uh, do they have high status? Are they respected by their peers? Uh, maybe in, in long-term pair bonding mating, are they, a kind person or a generous person you know do they have a you know a good suite of personality characteristics but emotional stability is not something you can assess accurately um very quickly and so that's why i tell people you know if you're getting serious about someone go on vacation to a foreign country 
where neither of you speak the language and where you have to, you know, face stresses and strains and get by in different ways. And I'm not talking about going to a resort where everything is included and everyone does everything for you. I'm talking about like, come on, it's the only way I do it. <laughs> well, uh, but, the, but that's not the way to find out mm. what the personality characteristics of your partner are. And, and I think that that's, it's just one way to very quickly fast track getting an accurate assay of these personality characteristics. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, but, but very few people place a priority on that in their mate selection. And so I think what one way to think about it is we need to prioritize things. If you want a long-term, stable, happy, monogamous relationship, you need to prioritize things that are actually going to lead to that. Um, and the things that we prioritize don't necessarily lead to that. They may lead to other things, um, excitement you know you marry someone who's um high in status and gets invited to all the celebrity events or whatever it might be a very exciting life but it might be a very short-lived life <laughs> or in terms of the relationship well what's well let me ask you what what's the longest relationship you've had um almost 10 years 10 years actually okay. this is how it's gone 10 years almost five years Two and a half years, one year, two months. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Wow. Okay. What so, does that say? I don't know. Yeah. I, I laugh and say either the next one is totally the one or it's a week, you know? Yeah. Well, well that's that's a very interesting pattern. Um well, so what what do you think accounts for the shift in the longevity of your relationships? I think it's putting up with less, knowing myself better, having more self-awareness and not being willing to uh, deal with not being happy, always having options. I've always had options, you know, like you talked about in the beginning that some, some women, especially more in the past when there was less financial stability upon both parties, you know, I've said from the beginning, I'm not stuck. I don't have children with anyone. I don't, I can, I, there's multiple houses. I'm not stuck. If I'm not happy, I just, I deserve to be happy too. I don't have to stay. Okay. So, so do you think that there has been anything in your pattern of mate selection that has resulted in these shorter time periods? Or is it, are you selecting for the same qualities, but they, you're just less willing to put up with the. That's a good question. I, I think that, um, yes is true to the second part where you said I'm less willing to put up with things, but I also think and maybe you've kind of researched around this too, but I also think that we we date with a pattern. And so this usually is derived from our from our familial situation, where in my scenario, I learned that, you know, I was attracting guys that were like my dad because the original wound of trauma and relationally came from my dad. So we move forward in life and we try and right the original wrong with each relationship, but we never can because we're picking a pattern that's just a pattern. And it becomes less and less tolerable to us because we like as a as as a being, we become more and more aware of it. And we're trying to get to the point where we don't now seek that pattern anymore. And that's not a wound to heal. It is healed or it is acknowledged. And learning that I acted like my mom which was ultimately the most important piece of the puzzle, not 
the dad dynamic, but actually that I acted like my mom that then allowed me to be in these relationships was what gave me more keys to be able to go, okay, I can't do that. Like for me, it was being emotionally unavailable for me, which meant the way that I treated myself was I was emotionally not taking care of myself and completely ignoring my emotions myself. Like I was treating myself the same way my mom was treating me. And that was the same way I'm sure her mom was treating her. And, you know, because it's a pattern. And so now my work is to go, I am not going to emotionally abandon myself, my inner child, whatever you want to call it, because it makes me unhappy and I want to be happy. So I have to treat myself with emotional presence and availability. So, so how so how does that how would that translate into your mate selections? So have you have you altered the qualities that you look for in a potential mate? It created boundaries. So you know those boundaries get delayed down pretty quickly and pretty solidly. Like I'm not going to put up with this. This isn't going to work for me. As opposed to in the past, just moving through life and just going not stating what I needed. Didn't even know what I needed. And was way too afraid to say what I needed because it might not fit and then they might go. So codependency being a, a part of that too. So um, I wonder how much of sort of the, the the mating mating world is derived not only from sort of the status situation that we've talked about a lot, but also trauma. Yeah. Well, and so, but it sounds like given that emotional availability and expressiveness is very important to your happiness, mm-hmm. how do you identify those that quality or that set of qualities in a potential mate? Uh, you go through some trials and you go through some challenges and also their ability to share and ultimately share things that are unbecoming. Yeah. I think that's a good indicator of when someone is emotionally available is that they, they, they want your help. They re- they ask for assistance in some way. They, they share that they don't have the answer as well as um, that they are willing to share things vulnerably that are not so becoming, but it's honest and part of their story. Yeah. Well, and that's a sign of psychological strength. Someone who's willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Be yeah. vulnerable and share um, weaknesses, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So I can't say I have all the answers. I'm not. I'm by no means. Uh, and it's not like I'm like yeah. And all of a sudden, I figured it out, and I've been married for ten years. Super happy. Uh, marriage. Do you think that this is an institution that is necessary? That is um, going to remain or be changed different and have a different opinion of? There's been a a pretty substantial decline in marriage rates uh, over the last, even the last 10 years or so. I'm inclined to think that it will will remain. Um, It it, maybe not as um, uh, at high, as high levels or, or as frequently or with as large a share of the population as has been true historically, but I think that what marriage is, is it's part of that um, pair bonding, long-term mating strategy where you are um, sending a signal of public commitment. That's Mm -hmm. what marriage has always been, a public commitment. You are, it's it's less for you than telling the the social world that you are in this committed relationship with this person. 
Um, and uh, and I think that public commitment is is an essential part of of marriage. You know, so I mean, yeah, yeah, you can have a happy long term mateship that no one knows about, or you know, that you don't public break us, or we're just or we're just dating. Um, but um, I think that making that public commitment helps people to want to work through some of the trials and tribulations that all relationships go through. I mean, you, you know, uh, and so I think it's, um, I think it's here to stay. Uh, I think it, it used to be the expectation was that everybody will get, find someone and get married and live happily ever after or miserably ever after, as the case may be. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, there are, there are more different lifestyles uh, that are available and permissible. And so it used to be there's a huge stigma associated with getting divorced, for example. Yeah. Um, and now there isn't, you know, I mean, everybody's, everybody's got married, got divorced. And so, um, so, but I think it's, it's here to stay, but, but not for as large a share of the population, perhaps due to the availability of alternative lifestyles. Okay, well, what about the idea that, um, or the potential that marriage, which implies something legal, what if it becomes commitment ceremonies of public awareness, right? Like, so you yeah. go get married, essentially, you do all the same things, but it's just not a legal thing. Like, it's yeah. a ceremony, there's rings, there's the sign that you're with, you know, it's sort of like the the eternal marker that you're taken. There's people there, there's, there's pictures, there's the whole thing. It's just like marriage, but it's not legal. Because that seems like, you know, like, you know, there's that sort of saying, like, can't believe that, you know, we take this beautiful relationship and then get the gut, you know, get, get, get the legal team involved. Like, is that really necessary? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it is necessary as long as it has that kind of public signal. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I don't I like that. I'm not a big fan of the government getting uh, involved in personal relationships uh, myself. So, um, so, but I think the public aspect of the, commitment is what's critical interesting yeah i i i um i like that i think that makes sense what ends up leading to like with the study of evolutionary psychology you're essentially you know you're looking at these patterns of history and how they evolve and i'm sure i'm not articulating it all perfectly for like the correct definition exactly but what i'm really just wondering is how does it change like how, what is it that creates a shift in culture and in society that is then something that you go and look back on time and go, it changed like this? Like, what is it that creates those, those shifts in culture? Well, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a huge question. Oh, shoot. <laughs> but, but um, I'll give, I mean, I, we could spend uh, at least an hour talking about that, but I think that's the way that I think about it is that we have this evolved psychology, which is just like we have an evolved set of mate, uh, food preferences. You know, there's, we, we all have taste preferences for uh, sugar, fat, salt, and protein. And in the modern environment, we're just kind of activating our taste preferences. Um, but the modern world is so fundamentally different and is changing at an increasingly accelerating rate, especially in the mating arena, where 10 years ago, you had 
a little bit of online dating. Now everybody's doing online dating or, or, or it, it's got totally destigmatized. So everybody, right. I know a, one uh, student of mine, she said she's literally never been on a date with anyone that she hasn't first met online. And this is, to me, this is crazy because, you know, I mean, you, you want to meet people in real life. Uh, but, but so uh, the dramatic shift toward online dating I think is creating a massive cultural shift. Um, the availability of online pornography and the consumption of online pornography has created a massive shift. I think um, social media and the um, design of social media to capture our attention and absorb our attention and, and uh, all these things are changing. So we're living with this um, evolved ancient psychology that evolved for a world that we no longer live in. And so there's a mismatch uh, or suite of mismatches between the circumstances in which we evolved and the current environment in which we live. Uh, and so uh, I think some of these things are, are having detrimental impacts, like the, the huge proliferation of just social media, for example. Mm -hmm. um, there's some evidence, at least, that it's resulted in increases in depression and anxiety. Um, sure. Uh, you know, in part because we evolved in social groups where social relationships are critical to our survival, have always been critical to our survival, but also to our happiness and sense of well-being. And now people have, you know, a thousand Facebook friends who they've never met, but they don't have any real relationships, you know, where they yeah. feel someone is deeply involved in their welfare. And I think that's actually what's characteristic of a good long-term mateship is someone who is deeply involved in your welfare and you're deeply involved in their welfare. And we, we don't have that as much nowadays with so much superficial social interaction that occurs through messaging and online stuff and less and less real life interaction and real life relationships. So I think that recognizing uh, some of these mismatches is critical to solving some of the problems we're facing with the current changes in, in our environment and cultural evolution. I love that, to care about each other. Like it um, just really feels like a, a macro solution to so many things right now. Yeah. It's just yeah. This Another phrase that I use is, is deep engagement. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to have deep engagement with another person and that's how you know who your true friends are as well as who a true mate is for you and in the modern environment we have like a million superficial quote friends but a lack of deep engagement so what would signify that deep engagement could you give us all just a couple couple bullet points of what what that looks like so that we can try and go achieve that well, well, <laughs> that's also a complicated question, but one thing is um, what I call, uh, and this is in the terms of evolutionary psychology, and it's kind of a clunky phrase, but an altruistic welfare trade-off ratio. And what welfare trade-off ratio is, is, you know, let's say we're in a relationship, do I, how much value do I place on my welfare relative to your welfare? And so a successful relationship is one where um, I place a tremendous value on your welfare and you also place a tremendous value on my welfare. So what that means is I'm making 
sacrifices. So instead of, let's say, I don't know, um, going to the bar to have um, drinks with my buddy, um, you need to talk through a problem or whatever that I'm willing to sacrifice going to the bar and having drinks with my buddies uh, because you need me now. And similarly, you are willing to make personal sacrifices at times for, for my welfare. Um, and so I think that 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 an altruistic, uh, an altruistically skewed welfare trade-off ratio is one of the keys to that, as opposed to a selfishly skewed welfare trade-off ratio where someone says, no, I have my needs, my wants, or whatever, and so I'm just going to do whatever I want. And, you know, it, who cares about the effect on you? If it makes you unhappy, then just get over it. Um, that's not going to work. Okay. That's my two cents on, on that question. <laughs> Perfect. I'm sure. Thank you for deducing it down to something that we can grab onto in this conversation. And hopefully someday we have another conversation, um, maybe when this book comes out. I'm so yeah. excited to be writing with Chris. Chris is obviously super fascinating with evolutionary psychology as well. He's a um, super smart guy. He's great with statistics and loves to dive into the science and the uh, you know all the research on things. So you guys will be a great team on that. Yeah, I think so. It's it's kind of um, uh, we have very complementary skills. You know, I'm more the basic scientist who's studied human mating for years and years and years, and he is uh, super smart and also um, well good with statistics. But he's also a very good communicator. Um, he, he can take findings and studies and communicate them in a succinct and powerful way that that people get the. The message and so uh so i have a lot of respect for him and become friends with him he lives here in austin yeah uh, everybody you live in austin yeah everybody yeah. lives in austin yeah. <laughs> i know so well it's a, it's a good place to live well thank you so much for this time and all of this information i look forward to exploring in the future how we've evolved and more solutions Yes. Okay. Terrific. And best of luck with in between now and F1. Best of luck in, in your mating life. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.